Pray with me in the spirit of Howard Thurman, who reminds us how good it is to center down. Lord, this is the day, and now is the time to center down with you. The streets of our minds seethe with endless traffic. Our spirits resound with clashings, with noisy silences, while something deep within hungers and thirsts for the still moment and the resting lull. With full intensity, we seek you, and we seek from you a fresh sense of order in our living, a direction, a sure, strong purpose that will structure our confusion and bring meaning to our chaos. So many questions persist, oh Lord. What are we to do? Where are we trying to go? What are our motives? Where are our values focused? Where is our treasure? And what do we love most in life? What do we despise most in life? And to what are we true? God of questions and God of answers in the stillness. Call forth in us the deeper notes of clarity and calm, which only the quietness of our hearts and minds in your presence makes clear. Refresh us and inspire us as we move back into the traffic of our daily routine, but with the peace of the eternal as our guiding force. Indeed, how good it is to center down with you. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you this day. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I talked about last week, being nearsighted and farsighted with Jesus, having that bifocal vision. This week I have learned being nearsighted and farsighted with Jesus is hard work. I think we've all learned that. It can make a person dizzy, trying to switch back and forth between the lenses, looking up to see far and looking down to see up close and all the while trying to listen to the sound of the genuine, the voice of God, in the midst of so many other voices vying for our attention. This week has been full of hard and sad and frustrating things that don't have easy answers. And they won't just go away if we close our eyes they're still there even when we try to look in another direction. So the bidding prayer that I've been praying all week, Lord, help us to see our neighbors as you see them. 
means everywhere I've looked, neighbors are there. And I kept tripping over words trying to describe neighbors as unhoused or housed or businesses or community members or congregation members. And by Thursday morning, I couldn't keep up with the descriptions anymore. So the neighbors are just the people who are right in front of me, waiting for me to recognize them and to recognize that they too are a beloved child of God. Yes, being nearsighted and farsighted with Jesus is hard work. But what else did he tell us to expect? We come again to texts that tell us why it matters that we keep doing the hard work of maintaining a bifocal vision with Jesus, of keeping our neighbors right in front of us. Because the question is, how are we being called to be in relationship with the people who are right in front of us, waiting to be recognized and invited to live into the movement of God, in and with and through and among us, and maybe even in spite of us? Remember that the Ten Commandments appear twice in the Hebrew Scriptures. We heard one set in Deuteronomy 5 last week, and today is the set in Exodus 20. And there is very little variation between the two accounts except for the fourth commandment, the one to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. Again, the behavior required in both sets is the same. Work on six days, rest on one. But the reasons why are different. In Deuteronomy that we heard last week, the fourth commandment is rooted in the experience of people newly released from slavery. You keep Sabbath because you couldn't when you were slaves in Egypt. But in Exodus, the fourth commandment is grounded in the story of creation. The human pattern of six days of work and one day of rest follows God's pattern as the creator. And sharing in this pattern of work and rest, human beings live into and as the image of God. Walter Brueggemann says that Sabbath keeping is a way of making a statement of a peculiar identity amidst a larger public identity. And that Sabbath is a practice of maintaining and living that peculiar identity, resisting the expectations of the world around us to have and be and do more or to be and do and have it all. Sabbath is the witness to the truth that is as old as creation, that it is by God's efforts, not ours, that we have life. And we know that all creation, nature and each other, are gifts to be enjoyed and treasured and protected. Not natural or human resources to be used and exploited for personal gain. 
Genesis tells us that by the end of six days, God had done all that was necessary for creation. And so the final act of creation was to rest. And in doing so, to demonstrate to the creatures how to rest as well. God took the day off. God did not show up to do more. God did not swing by the world one more time just to make sure that everything was working just as God left it, and just in case something might not be functioning. God is not a workaholic. God instead has complete confidence in the fruit-bearing and blessing-generating process of creation. And we are created in this image of a God who made all things in such a way that they work together and are made to grow and flourish in harmony. We were not created to be anxiety bearers and coerced into thinking and feeling we must manage everything as if we were God. For how can we respond to our neighbor when anxiety clouds our vision? How can we see the presence of God in the person right in front of us when we are so anxious about everything from not hurting someone's feelings even when their behaviors and choices put others at risk to the possibility of having to change and maybe let go of some ownership and control of a ministry that now needs more than what we can give. We don't see very well, us humans, when we're anxious. Anxiety and the coercion that accompanies and feeds it distracts us from seeing both near and far. The bifocal vision of Jesus gets replaced by our own monofocal vision, where in anxiety we see everything all at once and there's no ability to get distance or perspective. It's too close. This is what I think Thomas Merton, the wonderfully wise monk, warns about in the opening sentence quote, that this anxious tendency to overcommit to a multitude of concerns and demands from a place of wanting to help everyone in everything, he says is to succumb to violence. He says the frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes our work fruitful. I wrestled with that one this week. We found out as a congregation this week what our limits are in the wider work of responding to our neighbors through addressing homelessness and the housing insecurity so present in our county. Because of our location, in the city limits and in this neighborhood, we can't provide camping shelters or other shelters to folks who are homeless. However, however, that does not mean 
we stop loving and caring for our neighbors who are homeless. That does not mean we stop sharing a meal together every week. That does not mean we stop sharing life together around the table or wherever we meet them as we go about our days. It doesn't mean we stop learning about what needs are present that we can meet and then get to it. Limits just mean we can't do it all. So in a way that gives us a gift, an opportunity to think more broadly and to collaborate with others involved in this work who can teach us things we don't know and to offer opportunities for partnering and building relationships across our common life. These limits also give us the gift of leading by example and encouraging other congregations and agencies to see our neighbors as God's beloveds who are worthy to live in a community that recognizes and values everyone as being deserving of dignity and respect. When we recognize our limits, our energy shifts from a place of anxious, ego-driven work to a clear and steadfast commitment to caring for our neighborhood. Sabbath is the pause that nurtures this inner root of wisdom that ensures our work stays fruitful. Sabbath counters the coercive anxiety to keep doing everything ourselves with a deeper commitment to neighborliness. This commitment to neighborliness means talking with our neighbors who live and work around us, listening for where our relationships with them need nurture and repair. Now sure, neighborliness doesn't produce as much that can be seen and touched and quantified. But neighborliness creates an environment of security and respect and dignity that redefines all our relationships and restores our vision once again to align with Jesus's vision and his call to see things near and far clearly, just as he does. We still, have much work to do. But remember, we are created in the image of God who works and rests and commands us to do the same, to rest so that the peace and wisdom of the eternal will guide our fruitfulness. Jesus and the poet Lynn Unger Put it this way. Consider the lilies of the field, the blue banks of commas opening into acres of sky along the road. Would the longing to lie down and be washed by that beauty abate if you knew of their usefulness? How the natives ground their bulbs for flour, how the settlers' hogs uprooted them grunting in gleeful oblivion as the flowers fell. And you, what of your rushed and useful life? 
Imagine setting it all down. Papers, plans, appointments, everything. Leaving only a note. Gone to the fields to be lovely. Be back when I'm through blooming. Even now, unneeded and uneaten, the comma lilies gaze out above the grass from their tender blue eyes. Even in sleep, your life will shine. Make no mistake, of course your work will always matter. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Even in sleep, your life will shine. Make no mistake. Your work, our work, will always matter. Thanks be to God. Amen.